BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, Catullus, 84-54 BC, wrote some of the most sublime poetry in the late Roman Republic and some of the most obscene. He found a new way to write about love in poems to the mysterious Lesbia, married and elusive, and he influenced Virgil and Ovid and others, yet his scatological poems were to blight his reputation for a thousand years. Once the single surviving manuscript was discovered in the Renaissance, though anecdotally as a plug in a wine butt, he inspired Petrarch and the Elizabethan poets as he continues to inspire many today. With me to discuss Catullus are Gail Trimble, Brown Fellow and Tutor in Classics at Trinity College at the University of Oxford, Simon Smith, Reader in Creative Writing at the University of Kent, Poet and Translator of Catullus, and Maria Wyke, Professor of Latin at University College, London. Maria Wyke, what do we know about Catullus? Well, we have to be careful about uh, what we think we know about Catullus. He writes many poems in the first person very passionately about his circumstances, but this is poetry designed to be consumed by the public as poetry. And what you say in poetry is not necessarily who you are. Yeah, but what do we know about him? But we have a few things that we do know about him, one of which is that he was born in Verona, which is quite significant because Verona then was not part of Italy. It's a province. We know that he, um, his father was probably a magistrate because he was a friend of Julius Caesar. They owned a country villa by Lake Garda. So he probably passed on to his son Roman citizenship. We know that he took the first step on the career ladder of um, elite Romans by going to Bithynia, which is sort of northern Turkey, as part of a, a governor's administrative team. We know that his brother died near there in, um, in western Turkey, uh, by which he was devastated. We are told that the woman that he calls Lesbia in his poetry uh, was a pseudonym, that that was a pseudonym for um, an aristocrat called Clodia. And we know that he was good friends with many poets in Rome and with many key players in Rome, such as um, Cicero and Caesar. Do we know why his life is so short, 30 years? Uh, well, we uh, don't seem to have any poetry much beyond 54 that we can we can date. And there's BC speculation. He died yes, yes. And uh, there's speculation that he may have may have died young. But sometimes people think we speculate like that because we want our po our love poets to die young. And it may just be that he gave up writing poetry because he says he was devastated by his brother's death. So we've given his dates authoritatively on this program as 84 to 54 BC, but we may be wrong, but we'll battle on nonetheless, Maria. Thank you very much. What was the state of the Roman Republic when he was writing? Well, it was in uh, it was uh, approaching absolute disaster because within a few years of his death or of the time that he ceased to write, we're going to have Julius Caesar crossing the River Rubicon, the start of civil war, battle between Caesar and Pompey, the collapse of the Republic. So all this is about to happen. Is this hindsight on your part, Maria? Did they know it was about to happen? Did they know he was going to cross the Rubicon? Did they know that he was going to be assassinated? They or is this hindsight? I mean, that's just <laughs> getting on with being a Roman Republic at the time when he's alive. And you're, you're pushing all this back into it as significant. Did they well, know it was going to be significant? We, we look at some of the poetry that Catullus writes because he famously slanders Julius Caesar in one of his po in, in several poems. But he slanders him and calls him a pervert. He calls him shameless and voracious because he allowed someone on his military campaigns to accrue disgusting amounts of money. And some critics think that the reason that um, he writes like that about Caesar is because it's indicative of a, of a real concern about the way power is now being... Um, focused, concentrated on these great generals who are going to wage battles, earn money and honour abroad in order to exert power back in Rome. So he sees this as too much wealth and, and, and inevitable decay of the principles. Well, so he seems disgusted by that and it's quite clear that in his poetry he doesn't write directly about waging war, politics, the state, Roman history. He writes about Greek myth and love and and, uh, and loss and uh, betrayal. And you get the sense that perhaps he's doing that because these other subjects are ones too terrible to contemplate. 
but yes, but again, that again, we're not quite sure. About. No, no, we're just making this up as we go along. No, but no, this no, is no. A bit Belmont. You spend a lifetime making it up as you go along, so, so, so you're probably a better maker up of you three than anybody else around. So we'll go with you three, <laughs> not with me. Simon Smith. Um, yeah. Can you give us some idea of the range of a Cotullus poetry, please? Well, he packs a lot in to a, quite a small oeuvre of, of poetry. We only have one volume of his, don't we? We have there's one volume, yes. Um, but I would argue in three parts. But right. We might might come back to that later. But there's 116 poems, and over a wide range, so everything from sort of two line epigrams to 400 line sort of mini epics, such as the uh, poem 64. And then we have a whole range of, of metrics from iambics to galliambics to all sorts of different metrics, and then forms as well. There are marriage hymns, there are short lyric poems, the love poetry that we are very familiar with, or most familiar with, and the satirical poems um, about particular individuals, and also the scatological poems as well. And, and he covers a whole range of topics as well. Friendship, love between man and woman but also between man and man and politics as Maria's just been just been talking about and then there are various challenges that 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 come from that if you're trying to translate it particularly around ideas around tone getting because the tone can shift within a very short space of time within poems from real sort of tenderness to vicious kind of hatred really you find that in poem 11 for instance not everybody will be familiar with poem 11 Poem 11 is, is, is the one where he, he's basically asking his friends Furious and Aurelius to take a message to, to Lesbia, his lover. And he starts out talking about actually Caesar's, well, various things, but Caesar's conquest of, of Britain, but also the, the range of the territory that the Romans have conquered all the way across to Syria. So there's all those kinds of things going on. But it comes down to a focus upon his... He, the way he's, he, he feels wronged by, by Lesbia and her infidelities. And it ends with this fantastic image of his love being like a flower being touched by the plough. Yeah. Um, so that huge range of, of tone and subject there. What are the challenges facing you when you were translating him? And obviously particular language, but you've given us some idea of the range yeah. of the metrics, the different techniques he used, the different forms he yeah. used. Put it that way. So yeah. you went across a lot of forms in comparatively few poems, 116 yeah. isn't all that yeah. many after all, and people have volumes and volumes yeah. of there. Yeah. What about your, did you have a problem with the language, and, or did you have fun with the language, what happened? Well, all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it did feel like you were kind of, you had to kind of reinvent translating him every time you approach any of the poems, because the, the challenges are so different. If you take some of the shorter scatological poems, or the kind of sat- satirical poems, that's you're, you're dealing with language which is, which is pretty direct and seemingly straightforward. Without, um, saying, without saying something that will not, could not be repeated on Radio 4, can you give us an example of these short uh, poems? Well, if we take Poem 85, which is a, a, a two-line poem, ah, it's the, the famous um, Odiet Ammo poem, which is I Love and I Hate. I mean, it's, it's pretty powerful, isn't it? Do you want to read it? It's more than sure. that. I loathe and I love. Yeah. You may want to ask why. I can't tell. It's under my skin, and I'm wrecked. Yeah. Curiously powerful, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is almost... I mean, Ezra Pound is a modernist poet who takes, takes up Catullus as being an example of one of the great poets of the past. And it's because of that concision that um, is why Pound's so interested in, in him. But you as a translator are prepared yeah. to use very modernish language. I mean, bimbo yeah. appears in one of them. This yeah. girl's the bimbo. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just wanted something that was going to be what I would see to be a contemporary equivalent to the kind of quickness that, you've, you, that you're getting in the Latin. That's really what I was trying to get to. If we just come back to, to the ODSMO um, yeah. poem, just, just very briefly. I love and I hate. Yeah. The thing is, is that, is that Odi actually, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it denotes it, it much more than just hate. There's a kind of physical revulsion about it, about that word, which is kind of beyond the word hate. Which is why I use the word loathe, because it, it's kind of like a physical reaction to. No, it's a good. It's, it's very the, strong. Those two lines of and and it also has the word oath in it. So it, there's a kind of in the background. There's a thing about promises being broken, which I think is very important to Catullus. It's not only he's dealing with lesbia, but it's also with friends. Thank you very much, Gail Trimble. He was called a neoteric 
uh, in his lifetime. What was that? Was it a compliment? Well, it wasn't a compliment um, from the person who used it, um, who was Cicero. uh, And we think he was using it about poets like Catullus. This is in a letter of Cicero. Um, And he comes up with with a very highfalutin uh, hexameter epic line, um, which he says to his friend, you can sell that to a neoteric. Um, And that's sort of all the evidence we have for neoterics, although Cicero does also refer to new poets in a similarly disparaging way in, in another letter. But we've always thought it meant Catullus because that hexameter line sounds like it could have come straight out of Catullus' mythological epic, Poem 64. Um, and there's evidence, too, that Catullus had friends, um, poetic contemporaries, who were also writing similar kinds of stuff to what he writes. Not, well, only fragments of their poetry survives. Um, and they are both his friends. They turn up in his poetry. Um, he compliments their, their poetry, uh, like the um, Smyrna of Cinna, um, the poet, um, or he talks about um, writing a kind of quick, easy, um, jocular poetry with his friend Calvus, um, the other poet, o- over drinks. Um, but also, fr- as I say, fragments of their poetry survives. Um, and they also seem to have written miniature epics, to have written love poetry, to have written marriage hymns, to have written rather scurrilous um, poetry alluding to political figures of the time. So it sort of fits to think about uh, Catullus as part of a group. Part of a group, yeah. And again, we have, I mean, the wonderful thing about this this period, and it keeps cropping up now and then, is that, that it's a mixture of jigsaw puzzles and archaeology, isn't it, really? Mm. And that's good. That's what you do. It's terrific. <laughs> that's why I'm interested in what you say. Uh, many of his love poems were addressed to Lesbia, as has been mentioned. Can you say a little bit more about her? Well, she's a character in Catullus' poetry, first of all. <clears throat> um, and she's often referred to by this name, Lesbia. But also there are other poems in which... Um, he just talks about my girl, my woman, even on one occasion, my goddess. Uh, and most readers identify that person with Lesbia as well, because there's enough of a sense of this one woman throughout the, the corpus that it makes sense for my girl to be Lesbia. Um, that word, of course, just means woman from Lesbos. Um, and Is there any further connotation in that? Uh, not lesbian in the, the, the modern sense necessarily, certainly not Catullus's lesbia. Um, although, of course, um, it's all very relevant to Sappho. The, um, the lesbian poet came exactly from the lesbian and who poet he translated quite um, yeah. so Catullus translates um, one of her poems in in, in particular um, and and in Sappho's original which is about how she's looking over to a woman she admires talking to a man um, there's no name for the woman she's looking at desiring um, but when Catullus translates the poem he puts the name lesbia in uh, and some people think this might be the first poem that went to lesbia. But uh, as, as um, has been mentioned already, Lesbia seems to be a pseudonym. Um, we have a later writer, Apuleius, from the 2nd century AD, who says that uh, Catullus used it for Clodia. And we have a, a likely suspect for um, a Clodia um, in a uh, speech of Cicero, um, who presents a woman who, who sounds like the sort of dominating woman that Catullus might have been in love with, but we're not sure. I find that the less we really know, the more intriguing it is, really. Absolutely. <laughs> Maria, Maria Wyke. Is there anything fresh in the way that Catullus wrote about love? And if so, what was it? I think there's plenty that's quite extraordinary about how he writes about love. He has a poem that starts, Vivamos mea lesbia tememos, which means, well, let's live and let's love. And what's extraordinary about that is that he's implying that the entirety, the totality of your life should be spent in love. And this is in a world where Romans, elite Romans, are expected to spend the entirety of their time on business, on politics, on war. But absolutely, if they have any devotion, it should be a devotion to their family and to the state, but not to love. So that in itself is quite extraordinary. And he also then excavates that love and examines closely from many directions what it feels like to be betrayed, what it feels like to be to disintegrate when you realise that your beloved is not um, in love with you. Is this new, then? To to do it from so many angles, to do <clears> it <throat> consistently about an individual, insofar as when we read his poems one after the other, we pick out the sense of a story. It's a story not told in order, which is interesting, but we feel that we can gather together this sense of many aspects of love. So he also, for example, in a long poem... Uh, describes Lesbia, and he names her as Lesbia, 
as uh, a bride coming to the house in which they conduct their affair, as a goddess, as a mythic heroine. And there what's fresh and extraordinary about what he does is he he prepares and tells a parallel in this mythic heroine for Lesbia, but as he as he unfolds it, it starts <coughs> to become apparent that Lesbia's not like that at all because she's not a bride, she's an adulteress, she has a husband. If she's his mistress, he uses the word domina, new, this metaphor, to mean a mistress in love, it means he's her slave and therefore he should be grateful for any moment he can have with her. And this language of goddess, of um, the slavery of love, this is all part of what's going to become a new romantic tradition in poetry. There's also an excessive, which takes us right forward to the uh, early Renaissance and later us, excessive uh, and up to pop songs, really. We have a thousand kisses, then we pause, and then we have another thousand kisses and, and that. Absolutely. So so not only is the, the language, the imagery that he uses, ones that are used later, including how can I hate and love the same the same person at the same time. He also, I think, very interestingly, takes the language of male-to-male relations from Rome and applies them to his ideal of how love should be. So he takes the language of reciprocity, contracts, sacred friendship, and he uses all those, and he says, this is what I want from love. And it's a kind of mutuality that you haven't had in the ancient world before, except perhaps with Odysseus and Penelope. Thank you very much, Simon Simon Smith. Uh, Catullus translated Sappho. Yeah, that's been mentioned. Can you tell us more about that and more about her influence on his writing? Okay, well, uh, poem fifty-one is the poem we're talking about, and it's—I I, don't—I mean, I don't really think of it as being a translation. It's more an adaptation. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that you can read the poem is that um, it's a form of masculinization of femininity, and that's one of its purposes. Can you just spell that out a bit more? Yeah, that I mean, phrase. well, what, well, okay. What he's doing is is that he's romanizing what is seen as the feminine Greek. That's one of the things that he's doing. So he's he he changes the perspective from a female perspective to a male perspective. That's the first thing he does. And then he also, as Gail was saying earlier, he introduces the word lesbia, which is not in the original. In the original, the poem is much more general, or seems to be. It's not specifically at a particular person, so it would seem. And then, most revolutionary of all, is he changes the fourth stanza. Now, some scholars believe that it's a kind of cut-and-shut poem. So the, the last stanza is actually from another poem that's just been added on to the bottom of the translation. My view is, though, is that it, this probably isn't the case. Sappho also writes for, uh, the poem in four stanzas. Catullus's version you could see, if you take out his fourth stanza, could be seen as a kind of condensation of, of, of Sappho's poem. If I do ask what yeah. uh, specifically and yeah. most importantly he got yeah. from Sappho, what would you say? The idea of, of intimacy and the intimate voice is probably the most important thing there. And this idea of, coming back to what you, you touched on earlier about, about the idea of popular song and... And also what we get in contemporary lyric poetry, I suppose, is that idea about falling in love with somebody, you know, in a situation like at a dinner party or something like that for the very first time. You know, it's, it's sets a kind of um, a kind of norm for how you might want to think about that and, and write about it. Love at first sight? That kind of thing. It is very much about love at first sight, absolutely. Yeah. And the description of and the way... And very hotly the, described in that poem. Yes, and it's and it's about not scatological, but hot. Not not at all scatological, and well, it's very tender. You see, that's this is the tender Catullus. Yeah. Until we get to the last stanza, which is then becomes about leisure, or otium. Otium is the word that he uses, but I translate it as as, as leisure, and the idea that suddenly it's about the falling of empires and cities. Yes. Um, we can leave okay. the fall of empires and cities if you don't mind for for sure. the moment. Can you, Gail, uh, let's come to um, poem 64. It's, it's what, this one of his finest. It's one of his longer poems. It's a mini epic. People think it's one of the finest of his time. Can you find a way to tell us about that? Thank you. Well, it's, um, as you say, short for an epic but long for a poem by Catullus. 
Um, and it shows the extremely sort of highly wrought, effortful uh, side of Catullus. Um, yet it's also very emotional and sort of gorgeously visually appealing at the same time. What's so it about? Let me tell you what it's about. Um, it's two stories, one inside the other at least two stories. It starts off by sounding as if it's going to be about Jason and the Argonauts, and then it turns out that it's actually about Peleus, who is one of the Argonauts, falling in love with Thetis, who's a sea nymph, and they're going to get married, and suddenly we're inside their house, which is like a grand Roman decorated house at their wedding feast. And following a Roman custom, the marriage bed is displayed, uh, and on the marriage bed, Catullus tells us, he starts describing it, um, there is on the coverlet a picture of Ariadne, abandoned on the island by Theseus on the way home from killing the Minotaur. Catullus gives us a flashback telling us all about her, her backstory, how she came to fall in love with Theseus, and then suddenly she's making a speech, cursing Theseus, lamenting her situation and all the rest of it, by which point it's not even clear if we remember that she's meant to be in a description of a picture on a marriage bed, etc. Um, at the very end... Was that taken up by Virgil in, in, in it? Well, yes, his ex- anyway, that's ex- is called is fine, yeah, it's, it's more traditional, but anyway, yeah. um, he was certainly interested in Ariadne. Um, Catullus eventually ends this ekphrasis, this description, by saying, oh, but by the way, uh, in another part of the picture, the god Bacchus was arriving to rescue Ariadne. Now, where are strange. we now? <laughs> well, you, you might well ask, almost, because um, uh, he suddenly then reminds us, and this is what all the guests at Peleus and Thetis' wedding enjoyed looking at. And you sort of think, but they didn't hear her making a speech, surely. And then we're back in the wedding, but it's not over yet. So what makes it so good? Well, um, if you like formal complexity um, and why on earth you might tell two stories one apparently sort of quite happy the other one um, apparently quite miserable except with this sudden deus ex machina happy ending you might wonder well what are these two stories meant to be saying to each other as I say you can appreciate the extremely beautiful sort of individual Latin lines and the, the rhetoric of Ariadne's speech for instance and eventually you have to come to terms with the ending which relates to some of the things Maria was saying earlier about the, the times and the Roman Republic because suddenly the narrator of this poem who's already chosen a very strange order to tell this story in two stories at least um, steps forward and says and all this goes to show how gods used to visit humans but now they don't because we've committed all these terrible crimes of incest and violence and we're totally divorced from the divine realm um, at which point you think well, how has this poem shown that exactly so it's very <laughs> mysterious too well thank you very much that was a noble effort thank you. <laughs> uh, maria um we've talked about catullus identifying with women uh uh, in the love poems, more sometimes than with the traditional male role, which is interesting. Can you develop that? Sure, it's been it's been touched on already in a number of ways because in poem sixty four, um, as Gail was mentioning, uh, Catullus spends a long time taking on the voice of Ariane, um, describing what it feels like to be left desolate on a seashore, having lost absolutely everything, including the person you had left your family for. So he's taken on this female perspective. In in the, the poem of Sappho that he translates, he's taking on her description of the physical sensations you have when you look at someone that you desire so much. So your tongue is paralysed, there's fire through your limbs, your ears ring and darkness covers your eyes. That's a description he's borrowed from Sappho's love for another woman. But he does this in a number of other places as well in an extraordinary way. Again, the reference to um, his description of his love for Lesbia as a flower on the um, edge of a meadow that's been cut down by a passing plough. That's amazing because the flower is a sapphic metaphor for a woman's beauty and also for her fragility in societies where once you've had sex with a woman, she has no value at all except as as wife and, and mother. So women are really vulnerable, and he's taken that metaphor and he's used that for his love. So that makes him the woman and Lesbia the plough that has destroyed him and hasn't even noticed because it's a passing plough. So that's quite an, a really interesting metaphor which which resurfaces... Uh, again, in an amazing way, in a, in a poem that's about a wedding. And just to, to mention that very briefly, in this wedding poem, there's a competition between boys and girls. The boys have to win, otherwise there is no wedding. And the girls the girls say that marriage, that the maiden at her marriage is like a flower that um, should be kept protected 
because if she's taken, she'll be destroyed. And the boys say, oh no, um, the virgin is like a vine um, which needs to be supported by an elm to reproduce. So you have this contrast between the plant that's productive, as the boys see it, and the beautiful flower that's going to be destroyed by marriage. And at the end of the poem, the boys do win, but you're left with that vision of the withering flower, the vulnerability of women in ancient society. Thank you very much. That was great. Simon, Simon Smith, um, can you find a way to tell the listeners... uh, how does his, how does he uh, does he write in a different way about his love for men uh, than from women? If so, can you tell us about that? Um, well, he, he he does, but he also employs some um, metaphors and some lines that are almost the same. Particularly when he's writing about Juventus, uh, he um, Juventus being he's well, he's a he's a young man. That's really about all we know about him, and that Catullus loved him. And there are four poems, poems 24, 48, 81 and 99, and poem 48 can be seen as the equivalent of poem 7. They're both kiss poems, and he employs the same metaphor writing about kissing Juventus as he does about Lesbia. So there's a kind of equivalence in in terms of how, how he loves the boy with how he loves Lesbia. Are you suggesting there's no difference then? I don't think there is much difference, really, in that particular case. I mean, the way he writes about me- other men is is a completely different thing, um, I think. And he he talks about the idea of he takes further the idea of of the kiss in terms of of a kind of the kiss of death, really, in, in poem ninety nine, because Juventus he rejects him in the end, and and there's a, a description of 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 the boy wiping his mouth of Catullus's kiss. And how sort of hurtful this is, which comes on to the idea, well, the os impurum, the idea of the dirty mouth, is related to that concept as well. But he doesn't employ that as a metaphor with with lesbia. Gail, um, what would have, <coughs> what would have impressed what would have impressed Catullus's contemporaries uh, like Ovid and Virgil? Well, um, I think one crucial thing is. Maria was already implying, is this idea that sort of ongoing romantic relationship with one particular woman, primarily, um, can become the subject of sort of connected poems. Um, and that gets very much sort of solidified into, into a genre of love elegy by Propertius and Tibullus and, and, and Ovid. Um, but also, I think, coming back to some of the themes from the longer poems, especially 64, this idea that you can tell a mythological story in quite such a subjective way um, that you as the poet can sort of step forward and address your characters um, and also um, tell the story in a very contentious way, emphasising some bits to the exclusion of others. This is very influential on Virgil uh, and also on Ovid insofar as he's an epic writer in the Metamorphoses, um, also telling one story inside another, telling um, short mythical stories, which the Metamorphoses is basically a tissue of. Also specifically Ariadne, as we were mentioning, um, and having that kind of sympathy for um, a heroine. Um, this has a huge impact on Virgil's portrayal of Dido in the Aeneid. And of course that creates great ethical complexity um, for Virgil's poem because as far as we can see in Catullus 64 Ariadne has just been abandoned by Theseus because he is a nasty piece of work um, but of course Dido has been abandoned by Aeneas because he needs to go off and found Rome and, exactly and for, 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 for Virgil you know, he's normally on, on Aeneas's side and for him to be quite as much on Dido's side as he suddenly seems to be um, shows the, the, the great influence that Catullus's way of doing epic had, had on what followed Thank you. Maria, Maria Wyke, um, then we have the scurrilous poems. Uh, they've been called, quite rightly, scatological and obscene poems. Now, we can't mention them, we can't repeat them, and uh, um, I don't think it's any great loss, actually. I think they're a bit puerile, but what do you think? <laughs> well, I think they're, they're, they're rather interesting in some respects, in that um, f- I'm, I'm thinking of how to be careful here. Um, there is, for example, a short poem in which Catullus talks about the past with Lesbia, and he says... Once I loved you alone, I loved you more than I loved myself, I loved you more than I loved my nearest and dearest. But now you can be found down the alleyways and at the crossroads, which for a Roman means prostitution. Um, and you and, and she and he said, so he talks about her and he says she glubit all the descendants of Romulus and Remus. So scholars have been greatly perplexed, right? What does glubere mean? 
we we know it as uh, from agriculture to mean stripping the bark off a tree, skinning a sheep. Clearly here it has a profoundly vulgar meaning, but we don't know exactly what it is. And that's kind of ironic because the way the poem has been structured is precisely to invite the reader to imagine and to think what is Lesbia doing right now. And that's part of the invitation of Catullus's poems, not just to be concerned about love and betrayal and loss, but to think in a quite pure and salacious way. Simon Smith, when I said the word puerile, I saw a distinct shaking of your head. Um, <laughs> now, these these poems, we were told, were recited yeah. at Roman dinner parties, uh, yeah. uh, and, and he thought fit to uh, collect them. Uh, so what do you think is their value? It's their rhetorical value and their poetic value. I mean, he talks about things... I mean, if we... Again, we... we <laughs> If we go to the sort of the the dirtiest poem, which is poem ninety seven, which I will not um, in any way. No, you would be cut if you did. So don't worry. <laughs> <for it. laughs> okay, well I won't, I won't do that. Um, basically, what he, it comes back to this idea of the os impurum, the dirty mouth, and 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 the way that uh, that poem, through its unfolding, uh, as you read it, uh, it, it connects the mouth with the anus, basically, um, and. What you end up doing as you, as you read it, or if you were um, part of the audience hearing it, you start to be implicated in that that sullying. I suppose is, is one way of putting Why it. Why do you give that value, though? Because it has. Because on the face of it, yes, the the subject matter seems to be it, it, basically he's he, he's taken a subject matter that should, that is unpoetic and made it into something that actually, through the use of um, elegiac couplet. Um, that is that has a that has an aesthetic value. He's and also he then counterpoints that with with um, the way that the images um, unfold too. So he starts out it starts out as, as something that seems to be completely sort of outrageous, and that's it. And then it turns into something that's grotesque, and right at the end it becomes something that's almost a kind of like a surrealist fantasy, really. So it, it progresses through hyperbole. So. He, he's building a kind of artistic value into it, even though what he's talking about is something that obviously has no artistic value at all. Well, I think you've got people rushing to read it at the moment, I'll <laughs> tell you the truth. Well, I hope so. <laughs> Gail Trimble, um, do we have a single image of Catullus, this young man, uh, from his poetry? Is there, a, is there a single Catullus? Well, interestingly, I think a lot of people, despite the range of his poetry, would would say that there is. I mean, Catullus is very interested in himself. A lot of Roman poets are, but he presents himself quite a lot. He he uses his own name, I think, about 25 times. Um, And we very much get the impression of what he values, both among his friends and sort of in in society and in poetry. Um, And those two things are really quite similar. They're about being sort of refined and, and... um, putting the, the, the effort in, I suppose, because I wanted to say sort of effortlessly cool, but it's not. It's being effortfully cool, um, that everything is sort of a, a, as it should be, that you, you, you don't break the rules of what he expects, sort of how he expects his friends to behave towards each other. And similarly, the poetry that you write is not sort of long and careless and sort of churned out. Um, it, it, it's small, it's elegant, very much in, in the Alexandrian Greek tradition of Callimachus. Um, and therefore it has value and can be celebrated by his friends as a group. Um, and Catullus himself um, then uh, is sort of somebody who tries to live up to all these expectations on one level. On the other hand, he writes about his own emotions and, and um, how he sort of feels when he feels betrayed in any of these values, I think, either aesthetically or socially. Maria, um, what else, do we learn much about Roman society from his, uh, his work? Well, I think there's two things that strike me about reading his poetry. One is that it's um, a culture of empire in the sense that um, his poetry shows that Rome is so thoroughly bilingual in its literature and in its society, that this is a a world in which people are completely engaged with Greek literature and Greek language, um, and that they use it as part of their strategies of, of playing, as Gail said, these games of sophistication and urbanity at their dinner parties. But I think the other thing that strikes me is how, I suppose you could say, homosocial the world was. It's a world of male-male relations, uh, highly competitive, often abusive, 
and we see that it's a world where to be a man is supposed to be uh, being a soldier, a husband, a politician. But when political life is moving away from you because it's accruing in, in different quarters, masculinity becomes uh, in crisis. It's fragile. You can't perform being a proper man. So you get this amazing poetry about the crisis of masculinity, about challenging what it is to be male. Simon, why is it that it took his manuscript that long, 13, 1400 years, oh, 50, 1600 years, to come to the attention of West, the, well, let's call it the Western world, the Renaissance, when Ovid, who learned from him, and Virgil, who learned from him, and Propertius, who learned from him, were sailing away in the intervening time? Why did it take him so long? Well, probably the obscenity has a lot to do with it. And he certainly, as I understand, really after Marshall, he's he, he he's mentioned by Marshall sort of 100 years later, but then he seemed to sort of slip away. But we don't really know why that happens. But they survive very often because, well, for a start, somebody like Marshall, you know, wrote 12 books, 13 books of... Of, of, ep- of epigrams so because it, it's because the, the body of work is, is small to begin with but it is also because of this business over the way that he, you know much of the work is obscene and you can't use it to teach Latin well you could have used the, you could use the book and just cut those poems out couldn't you it isn't yeah. beyond the wit of man and there's only about five or six of them anyway um I th- there are a few more than that. Oh, all right, seven or eight. <laughs> There's quite a few more than that. <laughs> all right, of 116, how many are there? Oh, um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's, well, it's a sizable so, minority. Let's, let's say there like are 20. You could yeah. cut 20 out yeah, and you you've still got 86 poems. Yeah. Uh, and why didn't they publish 86 poems? I don't know is the honest answer to that. Um, there's also the form in which he's it, it's produced. So he's, he's you know the, the the poems are written on papyrus rolls, and that doesn't in, in later time that is not the way that, that things are uh, uh, transmitted. But what um, seemed to happen that mm. when he did get rediscovered or yes. discovered, that he rolled into the Renaissance poets' minds and rolled through Elizabethan poetry and rolled on from that uh, quite effortlessly and importantly. Well, no. I'm wrong about that. Uh, well, he does, but it's very, very small number of poems. So we're talking about the Kiss poems and the Sparrow poems, the Lesbian poems, the, the sort of the, the, the major ones, uh, are translated again and again and again, mainly as a way... Well, he, he becomes a way of proving yourself as a kind of courtier, particularly in the Elizabethan court and, places, and such places as that. So, um, sorry, Gail, just come, we're coming to the end now. Gail, what... Did people at that time, we've talked to um, Sam is talking about courtier and Elizabethan age, what what appealed to them? What Why did they, there were fewer poems than there were from, well, fewer lines certainly than there were from Virgil and Ovid and so on, but what appealed to them about Catullus? I suppose a kind of directness um, that also I think appeals to us very much today with some of his short and accessible poems that includes in the latin they're more colloquial and some of them are sort of seem less bound by the kind of rules of genre um but are just catullus saying something like i to a, to a fellow poet i can't believe you sent me a book of horrible poetry as a joke saturnalia present tomorrow when the bookshop's open i'm going to buy one for you um so it, it's it's simple with, with i mean um, simon mentioned the poems about kissing lesbian many times poems on the death of, of her pet sparrow um those are the ones that immediately become popular um because i think they they seem uh more accessible than than even the you know love poems of other poets. Yes, and there's also something about they can present. He then presented as a heterosexual poet as well. I think that's really important. Mm. That the, the the poems about young boys just are just a, a, a no go area. You can't. When you're in do a Christian that. era, yeah, and, and that, that's out exactly. And then you're so in that, an era that excludes where homo- those. Homosexuality becomes a crime, so yeah. that's doubly out. Exactly. So so that category of poetry can't come into the canon either. So you do limit, or he is limited, to the love poems for women. Then he seems to be heterosexual, which he's not. And, and he suffers from that for a long time, I think. When I was um, studying Latin, when I was 14, 15 in a convent school, we had selections of Catullus, mm. so there was a lot left out. We had uh, poems that um, we were, to- we were told uh, what the translation was of certain words, 
and they were just not true. So we were told that scortillum meant little cabbage and it means little whore, but you couldn't have had that in the convent school. And then we were also told, oh, when men kiss each other, as they seem to be doing in this particular poem, that's because Romans are just like Italians today. They're much more outward-looking and friendly than, you know, us Brits. And you realise it's a completely false education. You're not really learning about the Catullus that was there, but at least it gives you a taste of what you could find out if you were able to access the totality of his work. That's fascinating. I mean, Catullus' role in education is just so interesting because... He's such a good introduction to Roman poetry, isn't he? Because you've got sort of tasters of so many different genres and so many different levels of Latin, some of which are quite simple, and then you can work up to sort of very um, in, intense um, epic language. And yet there's this obscenity. And, and But because it's such a varied set of poetry, because it doesn't present the lesbian story, if it is a story in any kind of order, he's just so suited for anthologising that, as you say, you can just create selections from Catullus mm. fairly easily and put them on syllabuses. And that still happens today. Your average GCS or A-level syllabus will just have this list of numbers, which is sort of some of Catullus's greatest hits that uh, it's thought should be read that year. Finally, what would you say was his chief legacy, Maria? I think a kind of intensity, his capacity to investigate what it feels like to love and be betrayed. I mean, Odi et Amma really does it for me because he also says that to experience that, to be loving and loathing someone at the same time is is excruciating but it's precisely how he feels and that's what happened does he does he generalize uh, i've only read what the two lines that must be it, well it, this issue of loving and being portrayed it comes up in all shapes and forms in all sorts of places including at the level of myth so so it's a thread that runs through his poetry the sense of, of of how people can say one thing and do another, how they can have behaved so lovingly towards you at one point and then move away from you the next. Those sorts of things can seem really immediate, even though they're they're described in a world that's so alien to us. So it's it's an extreme version of things that we feel today. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed that. I hope everybody else did. <laughs> thank you, Maria White, Gail Trimble and Simon Smith. Next week. It's the siege of Paris in 1870 during the Franco-Prussian War and the commune that followed. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Here we go. What did we miss out that you would like to put in? Yeah, I mean, it's variety that I think is really important. It's also why so so many uh, modern and contemporary poets have translated Catullus. Um, I mean, one of I mean, there are so many different types of translation now. Can you give us some idea? Well, some of the more extreme idea, ideas would be uh, an American poet called uh, Brandon Brown. He doesn't actually translate the poems. He he gives you instructions on how you might want to translate the poems, mm. each one of them. So, poem fifty-one, for instance, has a series of of ins- of, of what he might do to to translate it, and, and number twelve is to is to leave it to a poet called Bernadette Mayer to do because she can do it better than he can. You know, this kind of thing. But what other, what other of these friends, anybody that the listeners would know? Well, there's Anne Carson, uh-huh. who, who, who put together a fantastic... It's called Knox. And it's a translation of just one poem, poem 101, which is the poem about the death of his brother. And it's a memory box about the death of her, her brother. And so it's, it takes you through... I mean, it's, it's a short epigram poem, but... What she does with it is she talks about the death of her brother in the same terms as Catullus does, but she uses it as a she uses the box as a kind of memory box of postcards that should be she was sent over decades by her brother and all this kind of thing. So it's a it, it kind of enacts the process of mourning, I suppose. So so Catullus, you know, he offers up so many different ways that you can rethink and reimagine. But that, um, isn't that a great example of the way that that what engages people with Catullus yeah. is that sense that he can touch upon things that you feel mm-hmm. and and the variety of feelings that mm-hmm. you can do that to is, is also I think quite extraordinary because mm-hmm. I was always really taken by a poem where he talks about hanging about in the forum and his mate takes him off to see 
um, the little whore that I mentioned <laughs> earlier. And uh, he's um, asked, so when, when you went off on your, your trip to the province, you know, what, what goodies did you bring back with you? And he, he says in this poem, and I just completely lied, and I said, you know, eight litter bearers, which is the number you would expect an Eastern mm. potentate to have. So she, the little whore, says, oh, great, can I borrow them? Right? And he has to say he completely made it up. And so on the one hand, it's a poem about a completely different world, you know, this this world of the forum, of the empire, of litter bearers. And on the other hand, it's about what, what it feels like when you get caught out lying in order to seem more attractive than you really are. And, and he turns that into a poem, of course, which is so strange. He tells this whole story um, to, to present himself in this ridiculous way. And so that's relevant to what we were thinking about sort of the Catullus who emerges from the, the poetry, because once you sort of realise that he's doing that, you can see some of his really quite emotional poems as putting himself forward, as behaving in quite a strange way. And yet, of course, he's written a poem about it that, as you said, Melvin, has been put into his collection, has been circulated, is, is to be shared and that we're still reading today. And so you can sort of infer there's another Catullus behind that Catullus, um, sort of presenting the ridiculous version. And she's also caught him out intellectually. Mm. That's that's quite important, that he puts a woman in a position that he wouldn't normally do that with, mm. that she actually has outwitted him. And, you know, wit, Sal, is the kind of really important thing. Yeah, By um, asking for it to borrow his bearers? Well, no, well, well, it's the fact that he's then had to lie... Oh, I see, yeah. But what, how did she outwit him? I don't remember the poem. Anything like this? <laughs> <laughs> well, what happens is, is that although it is written in metre, the lines break up in the way that he, he can't he can't come back at her, basically. He just says, oh, yeah, yeah, I kind of remember that it was actually... Who, who, it belonged to me. somebody else. Yeah, they belonged to an, a friend of mine, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. Ooh, uh, and I don't happen to have them right now. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, she's caught him. Yeah. She's caught him out. Brilliant poem. <laughs> but there are many brilliant poems. Zukovsky. We didn't talk about Louis Zukovsky. And I his wondered if you were going to mention him as a strange translator. <laughs> well, he, well, it's an inter- it's a very interesting translation. Not it goes kind of beyond Catullus this as well. Uh, so it's a, it's a homophonic translation. So it's. Which Can is you kind of, fill the listeners in on the essential details of Zukovsky? Okay, uh, Zukovsky, nineteen oh two to nineteen seventy eight, wrote a long poem called A. Uh, wrote a whole series of short poems that were collected uh, called All. And he, what did he and do he, with Catullus? And he translated Catullus. Or rather, the, and the important thing about this is that he co-translated it with his wife. She created a, a, lit, a, a very literal version of, of the poems. And then he took that as the basis to cr- then create a, a sound translation. And what's interesting about it is that what ends up if you read the Latin against his English, you start to see where the English falls directly onto the Latin, and then where and then you can also see where it it doesn't because he has to just give you sounds in the place of a literal meaning. So it just echoes all the sounds of the Latin, and then if exactly. it means any of the same thing, that's exactly. an added bonus. Exactly. Well, but yes, but but what's important about it is you there's an argument you could have that it's more faithful. Because a lot of translators are kind of covering the cracks half the time because things don't quite fit, and then they don't fit at all sometimes as well. So translation can fail. And so he's showing where the failure is. So it's a kind of more honest translation in a way. Well, it's particularly difficult, isn't it, when we're yeah. talking... It's, it's one thing to talk about um, mythical poetry, but yeah. when, when we're sort of saying, this is a poem about meeting my friend's girlfriend in the forum, this is a poem about a, a joke Saturnalia present, mm. um, summing up the content, of course, leaves us with the problem that that doesn't show why it's poetry at all. Yeah. Um, but a large part of what's making it so witty and controlled and, and, and elegant and aesthetically satisfying is Catullus using that very everyday material and even everyday language, but turning mm. it into a beautifully controlled poem. Yes. Um, and that's very difficult to get across, obviously, when we're just summarising, but yeah. I imagine even for a translator as oh, well. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the evolution of, 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 tra- of, of Catullus' translation is, is far ahead of... Of, of other poets, I would say, certainly um, classical poets. Mm. So he's kind of become, if you think about Catullus's poetry as being about occasions, because they are about, they do speak to occasions, or they become occasions in, in themselves. He has now become an occasion for a translator to create a new kind of group of poems as kind of improvisations off Catullus's work, because the scholarship is so good, 
there are plenty of good literal translations now. So what do you do with Catullus? You know, you 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 know, you can start to, as I say, start to use use him as a kind of platform for improvising what you do. I was just thinking that that, uh, that Latin, I mean, Latin poetry like his is also incredibly challenging, I'd imagine, for translators because it contains things like words that are completely made up. So mm. how how do you translate that? Like his Baziationes mm. is you'd have to try it's, it's a made-up word so it's like kissings or kissations or kisslings or something like that you have to bring out the fact that it's 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 not a, a real world word and that makes it more forceful in its circumstances and then he has lots of words that would sound to a roman thoroughly greek yeah. mm-hmm. and the greekness of them matters to the poem so how do you translate that and then you have the the slang which do you translate that literally into slang which might not work for our modern slang or do you as Simon has done have to find a a modern word that's going to give the force of of what's in the original so there's some really interesting issues there and of course Latin itself is always difficult because it's an inflected language it doesn't need all these prepositions the ofs and the us and the, the article so you can have these really concise lines that contain so much in them and English has to sort of drag it out a bit, you know, through yeah. force of circumstance. That's so relevant to the other end of his style as well, to, to the formal style, because one of the things he, he does to, to the hexameter is to become terribly fond of creating these five-word lines, you know, like a dry stone wall with no mortar in at all, um, that just elegantly sit there and then there's another one and then there's another one. Um, and that's gorgeous and hugely influential and a large part of the appeal. Um, but exactly, um, English can't do that because we need yeah. the little words, just as so, Greek can do. So you have to take certain paths. So if you look at translation from the 1950s, of Catullus from the 1950s onwards, Horace Gregory does a kind of Ezra Pound version Peter Wiggum, the Penguin translation, he does a, a William Carlos Williams version. Zukowski does his homophonic um, version. And then you've got Ros Cavani. Have you seen that translation recently? Mm. Her translation. What she's done is she's turned most of the short lyric poems into sonnets. So it's a kind of like a reading back into Petrarch, which I think is really interesting. Mm. You know, the tradition of the reception of Catullus into English has gone full circle with that. I think we're about to be offered, uh, given an offer you can't refuse from our producer, Simon. Tea or coffee, anyone? I've got another tea, if that's okay. Tea, please. Coffee for me. I'll have tea, please. Thank you. Three teas, one coffee. Thank you you very much. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Henry Akeley disappeared from his home on the edge of Rendlesham Forest somewhere around the end of June 2019. They come every night now. The police don't believe me in the... Please, I just need you to get in touch. What we uncovered is a mystery that has sent us deep into England's past. To an area steeped in witchcraft, the occult, secret government operations. Now we have multiple sites of five lights with a similar shape of orbit. And something that might indeed be altogether otherworldly. <laughs> this is The Whisperer in Darkness. Available now on BBC Sounds.